Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Life of David and Me. My name is Jonathan Chan, and so glad that you can join me today as we conclude our series. Yes, we are done. Today is the last episode of the Life of David and Me, and so hopefully. You've enjoyed this series as much as Dan and I have been preparing them for you because we've enjoyed it and we've learned a few tidbits of here and there. Popular stories, you know, we tend to read them over and over again, but as you dig deep into it, you find little treasures that you've never realized and can、uh, find it relevant to your life as, as that happened to both Dan and I. So, hopefully, though these stories may be familiar to you, that during our journey, Together, you found some treasures to apply to your life and make your life a little bit more fresh and renewed. Now, before we begin, customarily we start off with a video clip, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the clip, and we'll be right back. Yeah, well, you'll have to tell them to call him back. He is indisposed at the moment. His mama's sick. Alice Fromm, a follower of Charles Manson, better known as Squeaky, attempted to assassinate the president as he was shaking hands. Where's Mama? She's upstairs. Hi, Forrest. I'll see you tomorrow. We sure got you straightened out, didn't we, boy? What's the matter, Mama? I'm dying, Forrest. Come on in. Sit down over here. It'll be a miracle if she reached her seventieth birthday. Those were the words from medical professionals who were examining my mom's condition when she was diagnosed with a rare. Brain degeneration disease. She was brought into a hospital when she had a fall while just doing her morning routine. And when she was at the hospital getting examined, they realized that she had a brain degenerative disease. And the doctors and the professionals told my dad that she would be lucky if she reached her 70th birthday. Now, following that, year after year, Her motor skills degenerated. She started walking with a cane, then gradually degenerated even further, and walking with a walker, then degenerated even further and needed assistance by having people push her in a wheelchair. And then, after two years left and remaining in her life, she was bedridden for the remaining days at a care home. She passed away on April seventeenth, two thousand twenty-one. Looking back. During those days, while I helped my dad as much as I could to care for my mom, there were good days, and there were absolutely horrible days. There were days when mom really tested my patience, 
And there were days when her needs were so great that I just felt helpless. There were days when I asked God, when will this end? And days where I wished I didn't ask that question and wondered, why did I even ask that in the first place? I'm supposed to be a good son. I'm her son. I'm a Christian son. Today, I want to share my reflections as I read David's dying days. When I read 1 Kings chapter 1, along with Eugene Peterson's reflections on this passage, I was moved to reflect on how my relationship was with my mom during her dying days. The point I want to extrapolate today is this. When caring for those we love who are dying, we must honor their dying days. Let's begin. Verse 1 of 1 Kings. King David was now very old, and no matter how many blankets covered him, he could not keep warm. So his advisors told him, Let us find a young virgin to wait on you and look after you, my lord. She will lie in your arms and keep you warm. So they searched throughout the land of Israel for a beautiful girl, and they found Abishag from Shunem and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful and she looked after the king and took care of him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. David is dying. Like my mom, he doesn't have many days left and he's bedridden. His advisors saw this and they tried everything they could to care for David. They even put tons of blankets on him. They even went to great lengths to find solutions to help David's blood circulation go up by testing out folk remedies such as bringing a young virgin girl to see if it can give David a boost, kind of like Viagra. However, that failed as well. Now, what spoke to me in this passage? In the eyes of the advisors, David's dying was a problem. A problem that needed a quick solution. A solution needed to be found to solve the problem, which was to stop David from dying. When my mom fell, she broke her hip and had hip surgery. After her hip surgery, she went to a rehab center to get herself mobile again. However, she didn't want to move and was not motivated to do any of the exercises. Both my brother and I tried to encourage her to do the exercises, but she was unwilling to do them. So unwilling that our encouragement sometimes led into lectures and sometimes borderline scolding. It's not because we wanted to scold her, it's because we wanted her to get better. And we firmly believed that in order to solve this problem of her immobility is to stop it before it gets any worse by exercising. We saw mom's condition as a problem and we wanted to fix it. And we knew what actions to take. And that's those actions she needed to take to fix it. So we provided statistics, studies, whatever explanations we can to convince her to do so. Now, in complete contrast, my dad did the opposite. He brought items that would provide her with comfort, blankets, pillows, a sweater. He bought food that she liked so that she can eat it while they chatted during their time together in the garden. He would come and wheel her out into the garden and if she was up for it, he would help her stand when she wanted to and when she didn't, he wouldn't force her. 
He was present and honored their time together, as opposed to being busy with finding a solution to fix the problem. For me, I was busy trying to find ways to reach to my mom in getting her to do exercises. For my dad, he gave my mom space. Instead of encouraging, advising, counseling, pushing, and lecturing, he provided comfort, time, space, and presence. In David's story, I can picture myself with the advisors. You know, running around, looking for medical professionals, looking up various journals and articles and trying to strategize on how to get David back up and running while neglecting to really just be present for David since David is all alone in his bed. The only person who was present that day was Abishag when present for the whole time of the remaining day of David's life was Abishag, the virgin girl. So the first principle in honoring the dying days of a loved one is this. It's three actually. Presence, time, and space in one principle. Presence, time, and space. Presence because these days are the most loneliest days of a dying person. And they need someone to talk to and express what's going on in their mind. Time, because everyone else around them are running around, busy plugging in catheters on them, plugging in IVs in them, checking charts, drawing blood for tests, checking the beepers and the bleepers and graphs and monitors, etc. And washing them down, wiping them down, changing their bedding, etc. Everyone around them is busy and have no time for them. Our loved ones need devoted time from us. They're not going to get it from the medical professionals. And lastly, space. Think about this. Our loved ones who are dying are in a room full of sounds, air vacuums, beeps, drippings, and chatter outside among medical professionals about other patients' problems. They don't have space for themselves. They don't have quiet space for themselves. We are called to create that space for them. So our first principle in honoring their dying days is to provide presence, time, and space. Let's move on. About that time, David's son Adonai, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I will make myself king. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? Adonai had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. Adonai went to the stone of Zeholath near the spring of Enrogel, where he sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves. He invited all his brothers, the other sons of others sons of King David, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the king's bodyguard, or his brother Solomon. I can't do this anymore. When, God, will you take her home and relieve her suffering and mine, especially mine? David's next oldest son was Adonai, who technically would be next in line for David's throne. David has been bedridden for a long time, and Adonai has been waiting and waiting. He's probably asking himself, when will he die already? Now, 
You might say that Adonai's actions were due to his spoiled, rotten character, and you're rightfully so. Yet that was only part of it. Adonai was also being practical. David is bedridden, and no one is currently governing and leading Israel. Adonai has actually been doing most of the work, but the final word and decision always ended up being stalled because David, being bedridden, had to muster enough strength to make the decision. And because David is old and slow and being bedridden, how many times did you think Adonai have to present the cases to David so that David can at least grasp what was going on? David is old. Things need to be done slower and more linear. He can't multitask like he used to, and that properly frustrated Adonai. Here is Adonai doing all the administrative tasks that his dad was supposed to do, but can't make the final call because that authority still belonged to his dad, who takes forever to make the call while other administrative tasks are due very soon. For Adonai, David was a bottleneck, an annoyance, a burden, a cramp in his life, and Adonai ran out of patience on his old man. See, I confess, I had similar thoughts with my mom as well. It's difficult to care for a loved one who is needy, but also is sometimes stubborn. It's also difficult to see them in their suffering, and you can't do anything to stop the root problem, which was her brain degeneration. When she couldn't do anything on her own, basic things like feeding herself or going to the washroom or even holding her head up, every five minutes, I need to attend to her. It gets really tiring. And looking at my mom's eyes as I help her, I can tell she's also embarrassed. She's humiliated. Her own son is doing the very things that she could have done on her own. I wished and prayed sometimes to God, why are you extending this? Why are you keeping her here when she's better with you? Yet I forgot one important thing. My mom wanted to see me above all else. And she's always happy to see me and her granddaughter, no matter what her circumstances were. She was just happy to see me. Notice in David's story that Adonai didn't even went to his father to see him, just to visit. David and Adonai never saw each other nor talked to each other. So much so that David couldn't even ask, why do you do that, Adonai? In other words, David and Adonai never had a face-to-face, father-to-son talk. It was always Adonai's messengers and David's advisors representing the two men. Not once did Adonai went to David's bedside and just be there for his dying dad, for his dad to just enjoy his son's company. All Adonai saw was a burden in front of him. God speaks to me through my mom's eyes. God spoke to me through my mom's eyes. Whenever I ask that question of why are you keeping her here for so long? Or I wish things would just end soon. God always moved my eyes to gaze into my mom's eyes. Though she cannot express it, though she cannot say it, God, through her eyes, tells me often that she is happy that I'm here with her. And she's sad that she's a burden. 
and hope that I can enjoy this time with her as much as she enjoys her time with me. Let's move on. Then Nathan went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and asked her, Haven't you heard that Haggah's son, Adonai, has made himself king, and our Lord David doesn't even know about it? If you want to save your own life and the life of your son Solomon, follow my advice. Go at once to King David and say to him, My lord the king, didn't you make a vow and say to me, Your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne? Why then has Adonai become king? And while you are still talking with him, I will come and confirm everything you have said. David's closest friend and also his wife were planning for his funeral and the future of the kingdom while he's dying in bed. And instead of comforting David or providing space for David to receive love from his wife Bathsheba, what was she instructed to do? To remind David of an administrative duty. In other words, to get David to write a will and seal it. Bathsheba does just that in the next passage. So Bathsheba went into the king's bedroom. He was very old now, and Abishag was taking care of him. Bathsheba bowed down before the king. What can I do for you? He asked. She replied, My lord, you made a vow before the Lord your God when you said to me, Your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne. But instead, Adonai has made himself king, and my lord, the king, does not even know about it. He also invited Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but he did not invite your servant Solomon. And now, my lord the king, all Israel is waiting for you to announce who will become king after you. If you do not act, my son Solomon and I will be treated as criminals, criminals as soon as my lord the king has died. We cannot blame Nathan and Bathsheba for doing what they did. It's a very responsible thing to do to ensure that David's legacy continued on with the right person, who is Solomon, not Adonai. In our context, though, it is important to get all the administrative things done, whether it be wills, medical directives, funeral arrangements, and what the dying would want for their funeral, i.e. last words, ethical wills, etc., etc., etc. We have social workers who we need to meet, right? Family members we need to reconcile with, bankers, lawyers, notaries, etc., etc., etc. Things need to be done, or else it would be chaotic and sometimes catastrophic if they're not done. And, our and if our loved one passes away before they're done, oh man, crazy stuff. Yet, in the midst of all the busyness, did Bathsheba ever ask David, Honey, how are you doing? Or, what have you been thinking about? Or, how can I help you make you comfortable right now? No, she didn't do any of that. What did she do when she went to David? She went directly to business. She talked the business side of dying, telling David to get his will done to ensure that Solomon is made king when he dies and to swear an oath to keep Bathsheba and Solomon safe. This is somewhat similar to the first point that I made about providing presence, time, and space for our dying loved ones. It's what we do with them when we are present and in that space is what this next principle addresses. What are we concerned about when we are with our dying loved ones? Them or us? For us, we want to get all these things done to prevent future headaches and conflict. 
For us, we want to ensure that our loved ones' assets don't end up with the government or in the wrong hands. For us, we want to ensure that all our dying loved ones' wishes for their funeral are fulfilled so that we don't hear back from a distant relative saying that we failed the loved ones' wishes. For us, we just don't want future headache and hassle. And hence, we talk business with them. We talk about the business of dying, but, we, but do we talk with the dying about their dying? Do we honor their time of dying? Do we give space and time to honor their dying? Yes, there's, lots, there's a lot to do. And thankfully, there are organizations to help us to do those things so that we can spend our space, presence, and time with our loved ones to honor their days of dying. Now, I'm not saying to completely neglect our responsibilities. What I'm saying in this principle is to be aware of how much time we're using for business talk and how much time we are giving for our dying loved ones to talk about their dying. So the question remains then is this. You're probably asking it yourself. When we do provide our presence, time, and space for our dying loved ones, what should we talk about? What should we talk about during that time, space, and presence with our dying loved ones? Well, there are many things to talk about, but if they're Christian, just like myself and yourself, there's one very important thing that I've learned from my uncle of what to talk about during that time. And that is to talk about the coming resurrection and take joy and praise and worship in that. My uncle and aunt would visit my mom often and he would sing my mom's favorite hymns while she listens. The hymnal lyrics are all about today as temporal, yet what we hope for is coming is the resurrection and eternal life with God. You know, the assembly with the fellow believers and the fellowship with our Lord Jesus. He would sing these hymns every time they visit, which was very often. And that's what I believe we should all do when we meet with our dying loved ones. We might not sing because we're not good at singing. We might not even read hymns, but we can definitely read psalms. Maybe read song lyrics. Maybe even read the hymnal lyrics to make that space, time, and presence a reflection of what a resurrected life will look like. To acknowledge what's today, but to rejoice of what's coming soon and what's already happening here and now. That, I believe, is the best way to honor their dying days, is to provide the space, the time, and the presence, but not use it for talking business or talking about the business of dying, but more so to provide that space, time, and presence as a reflection of what's to come. The resurrection and the assembly and the fellowship with our Lord Jesus. Amen.